Hey folks, thanks for joining me on Ultra Habits. I'm your host, Arjun Singh. My show is dedicated to all things executive. Here, we understand the unique challenges of executive life and the things that will no doubt come up in your business and personal life that have the potential to impact you negatively. On this show, we interview the world's top minds from the fields of business, medical, military, sports, the sciences, academia, and much, much more. Our goal is to leave you after every episode with more knowledge, wisdom, and awareness that ultimately help you improve your habits and move you and keep you at peak performance. Enjoy. And again, folks, thanks for joining me. What happens when you mix a poet, political thinker, and a special forces soldier all in one? You get Robin Horsfall. Most of us know the man from his remarkably insightful commentary on complex political situations and global injustices. His writing is insightful, thoughtful, and incredibly poetic. A lifelong soldier, literally before he was old enough to drink, Robin takes us into his early days of soldiering, into the life as British Special Forces, and ultimately to the love of the end. Robin is a man of principles, service to family and country with a view to always seek truth and justice, no matter what the sacrifice. Enjoy the show, folks. I really, really enjoyed spending time with Robin, and I know that you'll get a lot out of this conversation. Robin, welcome to the Ultra Helmets podcast. How are you going? Oh, it's great to be here, Razid. I'm doing, I'm doing okay. Summer's coming here, so the sun's starting to come out, but it's, uh, it's still chilly compared to Australia. Well... If it makes you feel any better, I live in a very cool part of Australia. We live in a in a mountain range in Melbourne, and it gets very cold up here. Uh, we've kind of got our own ecosystem, so we've all been well and truly freezing for the past uh, few weeks. And as a Californian boy, I've never really gotten used to it. So, yeah, that, that's my, my take on the weather. But again, welcome to the show. I'm really, really happy to have you, Robin. So, Robin, I came across you on LinkedIn I don't know, a couple months ago, just out of nowhere, you started posting these really profound and insightful pieces, kind of commentating on what's going on in Russia and the Ukraine. What made you, like, what, how did you commence that process? Like, what gave you the idea to start actually talking about that, writing about that? I think um, frustration, more than anything, um, frustration with the national media, with uh, online media, with all sorts of media who spoon-feed us uh, small pieces of emotional information to try to sell product, but don't actually give us any news. And as a former soldier and as a person who studied military strategy for a long time and politics, I thought I would put up, start putting out some very concise summaries on what I felt was actually happening and what was likely to happen. And over the last 15 months that the Ukraine war has been going on, I would say I've got about 90% of it fairly close to what did or has been happening. And I think an awful lot of people are now following me because they're relieved to see somebody talking some bloody common sense rather than trying to sell somebody's panty liners online, you know, between between bouts of you should be frightened, you should be upset, you should be scared, are we going to have a nuclear war, et cetera, et cetera. And I was trying to bring some reasonable common sense, as a lot of other military commentators have done too. So, yeah, that, that's that's pretty much it. Frustration motivated me to start to put it out there. And, you know, it's created a fairly large following. And I try to write 
on LinkedIn predominantly because um, I don't want to be accused of monetizing the law. And I know a lot of people do, and, and they need to do that for other, for other good reasons. But I wanted to stay outside and above, perhaps, that particular profile. I wanted to be able to say that I didn't want people to have the option of saying you're bought and paid for. So be completely objective about the subject matter and um, trying to be honest about it rather than sell something. Did you think it would be so popular or become so popular? Uh, well, I didn't really have an idea of what popular was. Uh, a few people, I've got 66,000 followers and about half to a million people read my stuff every week. And uh, people were coming back to me and saying, my God, that's, that's an awful lot of people. Um, considering you're not actually podcasting, you're not right, you're not speaking, you're actually writing. They keep encouraging me to do that. And you know, maybe that's in the game plan in the near future. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I didn't understand what a large number was. I just wanted to speak up. That's, um, I used to be called the veterans gobshite um, when I was um, fronting the Northern Ireland veterans campaign here, because there's so many people in the world that have the same feelings as me, but cannot articulate them well enough. Or they get cancelled. They get um, depressed. They get closed down online. They get trolled. And I've had, I've had experience of that over the last 15 months as well, where I get lots of major attacks on my webpage, which the security defends against quite well. And um, I get an awful lot of abuse, but I, I tend to disinfect my pages every few hours. The, the answer is to block and delete, not to engage um, people who are deliberately and maliciously trolling you. You seem like the kind of man to me that it wouldn't really affect. That's <laughs> so much. Either words to defend yourself. But, um, I was teaching at a children's school um, a few, a couple of months back now, about nine and ten-year-olds, I was explaining to them that words are the most powerful thing we have. And when we run out of words, that's when we get frustrated and angry. And although... We still sometimes in life need to defend ourselves physically. Um, it's words that um, give us the greatest amount of power. Were you always so well-versed with words, Robin? Because I know that you are a poet, you're a writer, and I think the way that you write has no doubt uh, been part of what's created so much impact. I mean, there's a lot of people that can write or speak about something, but I think it's how you do it. Like, have you always had this ability with words or is this something that you've developed? I think as a soldier I was accused of being mouthy. I got a few punches in the face for that. I've always had I've always been opinionated, strongly opinionated and um had a strong strong core values about right and wrong and um refused to be silenced, refused to allow someone to take away my voice. Um, but when I was, how old was I, 54, I broke my neck. And up until then, I'd, I'd spent 20 years teaching martial arts. Um, and I went off to university to do English literature with creative writing. And graduate, when I was 56, I went, off to, I went off to uni and graduated when I was 59, um, which gained, which improved my skills at communication, improved my ability to write. Um, it gave me a greater vocabulary. It gave me a better understanding of what uh, superfluous adjectives were. And so, yeah, um, a bit like when you're at home and you want to put some shelves up and it takes you two days and you take them down and realign them and put them back up again. And a carpenter could do it in 10 minutes. Once I'd been to university, I think I, I started to become a carpenter of words. That's a very, well, um, it's very good way of putting it. Speaking of, of words, a uh, your book, 
It's called Fighting Scared. How did you choose the, the title for that, Ron? Yeah, Fighting Scared is my first book and my autobiography. That's my life story. And uh, we cho- me and my wife chose the, um, chose the name of the book because originally, just as a, a draft, it was called Can't Crack Me, I'm a Rubber Duck. <laughs> but that, uh, you know, but that, was just, that was just a stand-in until we figured, figured something out. And we sat at a table having dinner, and she said, well, I, I, you know, tell me, what's the book actually about? And I said, well, there's an awful lot of fighting in it for a start. And she said, well, why were you fighting? And I said, I was so scared of getting hurt. Uh, well, I was 19, two drunken soldiers came in and almost beat me to death uh, while I was in my bed one night. And I swore that nobody would ever do that to me again. And uh, for a period after that, I was quite psychotic in many ways. And I was, anybody was looking for it, I was going to give them it first. Um, and that was out of fear, not out of being tough, not out of being a hard man, although I'd been a soldier since the age of 15, it was predominantly a response to abuse and, uh, making sure that nobody ever had that advantage over me again. So that's where we got the name fighting scared from. I mean, my wife was very much my editor, uh, but I wrote it. I wrote the first few chapters and she, uh, she took and she took a look at it and she said, "Well, she said I've had a look and this is shit." And um, and she gradually coached me into putting emotion into words, emotion onto the paper, and um, exploring um, the real feelings uh, that created the person that I became. So yeah, without her, she had, she had a huge input into my writing. And then, you know, I've written four books since uh, since I left uni as well. Who was the kid prior to joining the military at 15, Robin? Like, give us some flavor on how you grew up, how you came up. I mean, my, I was born in 1957. My mother was 17 years old and uh, my father was in prison. Over the first seven years of my life, I never had a father. And um, they divorced while he was in prison. And then she married a man called Jeffrey Horsfall when I was eight years old. And he had no experience of kids and I had no experience of fathers. So, so we clashed. And his method of um, disciplining me was to beat me into silence. And when you beat somebody into silence, you take away their voice. You take away their ability to make friends, to smile, to laugh. Uh, you take away their confidence. And as a result of that, I became quite a distant and sullen young person who um, struggled for a long, long time to make friends. Um, when I was 13 or 14, I started to fail at school because my home life was falling poorly apart. There was another divorce on the horizon. And um, to run away from it in many ways, I volunteered to join the army at the age of 14. But the school leaving age was 15 in 1972. And in 1972, I successfully became a full-time soldier in the British Army. Um, I wasn't allowed to go into combat situations until I was 17 and a half. But so for two, two years and three months, I was at what uh, was called the Infantry Junior Leaders Battalion, which was a military college for young men in a similar circumstances to myself. And, um, and it was a wonderful foundation to build on. Would you say that the army saved your life at that point in time? Like what would have become of Robin if you hadn't gone into the army? Let's, let's just hypothesize. No one knows, but, um, I was definitely on the path to failure 
Um, we come to places in our life where people can misdirect us or direct us. And uh, especially when you're young and you take a wrong choice and a wrong turn, and that decides the rest of your life. I took control of my life at the age of 14 and without prompting decided that this is what I was going to do. And I signed those bits of paper telegate giving people authority over me. And they taught me a great deal. And the thing they taught me most was how to teach. The last six months of my junior service was uh, teaching practice. And that was a thrill. Uh, bear in mind, I've already said that I'd had my voice taken away from me. And here was the opportunity to stand in front of a group, to impart knowledge and to impart opinions as well. And um, that's, that stayed with me for the rest of my life. Um, I've always had a vocation to, to teach, uh, to, um, as I said, impart knowledge to others and um, try to make it valuable and worthy and important. And that's what I do in my writing as well. It's another way of having a voice. Do you think by teaching it also makes us more accountable? I think um, when we teach something, we begin to learn it properly. When we take on the responsibility of teaching something, we actually start to study the subject properly because we have a responsibility to get it right to a class. Um, I mentioned that I was teaching at a local school and I was, uh, I was up introducing the poetry. And it was a thrill because going away from that class afterwards, I started to say, well, you've got to look into this. You've got to uh, know what you're talking about. You've got to... Um, You've got to have a better understanding of the structures of poems in order to impart it to a class. So you go away and you learn um, when you teach. Um, you're, it's not so much that the class teach you as they, they force you out of responsibility to, to do your job properly. And the best teachers in the world are singers and dancers. And I don't mean singers and dancers on the stage. I mean the actual practice is to entertain, is to stand there and, uh, here I am. Um, what we're going to do today is we're going to do physics. Oh, yeah, great physics. Oh, I hate physics. Who wants to fly a helicopter? And then we start to talk about aerodynamics, and we start to talk about vectors, and we talk about drag and everything else. And physics suddenly becomes flying helicopters. Mm. That's good teaching. The best subjects, the best things you were at school were a result of the best teachers you had. When you didn't like a subject, it's usually because you're a bad teacher, not because the subject was bad or you weren't any good at it. Just because you didn't have a good teacher. How did you take to kind of male influences in the army? Like, did you find that you struggled with authority or like, were you hungry for, like, I mean, you know, I talked to, I have a son. I talked to lots of men and, you know, the series is that young boys in particular, they, they crave structure, whether they realize it or not. Like, did you find that you took well to structure, you rebelled at first. Like, how did that male influence within the army influence you? And did you take to that immediately? Well, I had, a, I had a huge problem with authority figures because of the abuse that I had as a child from my only male role model. Um, so that was a struggle. There was a struggle to build up confidence and trust in certain people because there's an awful lot of people who are given authority over you that aren't leaders. And they're not even good managers, but there's a huge difference between the two. So people are given rank. They're given a job of instructing you. And um, um, an awful lot of it was founded on a, a bullying and stupidity. And so I struggled with that. Um, a lot of people copied it. So that was difficult too. But 
I knew it was what I wanted to do at the time. I didn't have a choice. The option of going home from the army wasn't really a choice. There was nothing to go home to. Um, so I was going to stay there. Um, but there was, a, there was a moment after about the first six weeks where I still wasn't 16. And one of the, uh, and I was, I, was, I was struggling to make friends, struggling to cope, um, struggling to blend and mix in with my peers. And so I retreated down the other end of the room and sat with another lad and we were just polishing our boot. And he just leaned over and said, don't let it get to you. You're not as bad as they make out you are, Robin. And I was just enough to keep me on at the time when it was a crisis. A few words from the right person at the right time can, um, can mean an awful lot to people who are young. Um, he was, um, I'm still friends with him now, 50 years later. So, um, yeah, you mentioned leaders. Um, people confuse leadership with management. They confuse leadership with authority. I mean, just because somebody's in charge of you doesn't make them a leader. And just as somebody's managing you doesn't make them a leader. I mean, a leader is somebody you lead. It means show people the way. It's a guide. It's um, it's going out, going in front. It's helping. It's not just telling people what to do with punishment and reward. Leadership's about inspiring people. It's about them wanting to do what you want. It's about setting an example, having the courage to set that example, and having strong core values that people aspire to. If you've got that, then you've got leadership um, and you've got the foundations of leadership. But um, authority doesn't make you a leader. At what point in your journey did you decide that you were going to kind of shoot for the heights of elite soldiering? Like, at what point did you realize that you wanted to really push yourself to, you know, become SAS and, and really... Uh, give it a go in terms of making it uh, a solid, solid career. Uh, but it wasn't really. Um, I, I don't. I don't think there are some people who go through life um, giving themselves targets, saying, "Right, I'm going to achieve this. I'm going to do that," and they do great. There's an awful lot of people that do that and they feel they failed because they haven't. Um, well, I was young. I, I didn't do that. I just, um, I just took the next step that life offered me. But I've always volunteered. Um, I always give it a go. Getting into the parachute regiment, getting into the infantry junior leaders battalion was um, a step up. You were already selected to be a, a, in a particularly above above average group. Getting into the parachute regiment, again, a particularly above average group. But um, I got into a um, a guided missile section, which was independent with a slightly lower level of discipline, but a, a very high standard of soldiering. They disbanded when a new missile came in, and they were going to send me back to a rifle company in the 1st Battalion, the Parachute Regiment. Well, I'd come from the 2nd, and I wanted to go back to the 2nd, but they wouldn't let me. So just to cock a snoot at authority, I, um, at the age of 21, I, went, I filled in the forms to volunteer to go to the SAS because I knew they couldn't stop me doing that if I volunteered. Um, they, were forced, they were forcing me to go somewhere where I didn't want to go. And so it was, it was just being rebellious. And there was a Yorkshireman in the back of the battalion clerk's office where I was asking for the form. And he said, I don't know why you want to do that. He said, um, you're far too young. 
you've got to be about 27 to do that. You'll be back with your tail between your legs. And um, he was wrong. <laughs> um, I was one of the youngest guys to get into the SAS. I failed like the first attempt, but they kept me on. And um, I had another go six months later, four, four months later, actually, and, um, and passed up the second attempt. So um, it wasn't really um, a direction that I was planning it was it was um, it was a rebellious act Absolutely. against those people in charge of me that wouldn't allow me to go back to my old battalion. Thinking back to that time in your life, Robin, like what was the most difficult part of the process in terms of becoming an SAS? Like when you reflect back, like was there anything that stands out to you? Is one of the more difficult things that you had to do to become an SAS? Well, it's nothing like the rubbish that people see on television for a start. Um, if they made a, a sensible television about SAS selection, it would probably be a very boring documentary um, because nobody pushes you, nobody shouts at you, nobody cajoles you. Um, you are already expected to be an experienced soldier, and by the time I was twenty-one, I already had, um, I already had six years of soldiering under my belt, which is an awful lot of time. SAS selection in the UK is a year long. It's not just a case of going up some mountains, doing some marches at certain speed to a certain weight, and that's the end of it. You do the first four weeks in the Welsh mountains where I live, and um, the last week is called Test Week, and it's actually five days. And that five days, you go out alone with increasing amounts of weight, and you cover increasing distances. And it's the, the whole five days is the equivalent of five marathons over five days over the mountains alone with weight on your back, with the final march being 40 miles. If you successfully complete that, and about 10 to 12% do, you then go on to continuation training, which is usually in the jungle. You live in the jungle, there are four or five main groups, and everything in the jungle wants to eat you. And I don't mean the big animals, I mean the little things, the mosquitoes, the leeches, the ticks, the bugs, the ads, everything like that. And you live in that environment, you work in that environment for another four weeks. And then you come back and you come back to survival instructors course. And at the end of that, after the last week of that, you're thrown out on the ground uh, with a partner. And you're chased by 1,500 men for the next five days. And you try to live off the land. You've got no food. Uh, all you've got is a great coat, a button compass, and a, and a paper map, a, a sketch map. And if you pass that, you'll then... Um, sent to do your parachuting if you're not already a parachuter, and if you pass that, you're given your cat badge and you join your squadron, and then you're on probation for six months, and in that six months, you have to pass a personal skill and a troop skill, and my personal skill was paramedicine, and my troop skill was mountain climbing, so, and at the end of exactly 12 months, you're then fully qualified and given special forces pay, and then two years later, you're assessed again. It's a full-on process. Failure is not an option. Well, you should be, because if you want to improve at something and get better at it, then you must be able to make mistakes uh, in training. And sometimes the standards were so high that they suppressed certain developments that would have been beneficial to the special air service. If you set your standards too high, um, then you end up losing people that simply won't make that same mistake again. Uh, so you kind of breed a level of perfectionism. And... Yeah, and it's, perfectionism's a mistake. 
um, especially in leadership and in management. If you set your standards so high that nobody can get it wrong, then they can't get it right. Um, one of my old sergeants say you've got to get it wrong before you get it right. And that's the truth. You do. In training. So that when it comes to the real thing, you're mostly going to get it right. In the real scene, in, in those scenarios, because I know that you were involved in quite a lot of uh, combat scenarios, did you find that you quite easily reverted to your training? Like, was it that standard of training so high that you yeah. were able to revert to that training? And were you literally scared? Like, your book title, like, were you scared? Were you fighting scared during most of these scenarios? The prospect. Oh, the worst part of violence is the anticipation of it. So if you have to sit and wait for an operation, that's when the worm of fear can eat into your brain. When you are actually engaged and busy and working at being a soldier in a frightening situation, then your training does take over. And your training was to make you familiar with fear. And it's the familiarity with fear that allows you to operate in a dangerous and um, in a dangerous environment. I'll give you an example of somebody who drives a Formula One racing car at 220 miles an hour around a rather sharp bend. And um, he's familiar with the vehicle. He's familiar with the equipment. He's familiar with the speed. And he knows what he's doing. And so the fear or the anxiety is there, but it's controlled. Um, exaggerated when something goes wrong, but even when something goes wrong, he's had the training to deal with that, to take it off at the right place, to uh, to feed it sideways into a wall, to lay the motorbike over, and so on. Now, it's the same with the soldier. You put in situations which you're prepared for. So, yes, you do experience fear, but most fear comes through when something unexpected happens, and you have to think quickly. And then then it's absolutely vital that you can control your thinking process and decide what to do um, in those critical moments in order to stay alive. Do you think certain people have a greater capacity for it, Robin, or everyone and anyone can be trained to manage fear? No, I think, I think it takes um, a certain type of person. Um, if you take really, really nice kids and put them all in the army. They're not going to do as well as really bad kids. Really bad kids who've had a tough upbringing and have um, been educated in bullying and the processes of life and the hardships and the sufferings that go with difficult situations are going to be better prepared for violence. Most of, not most of, uh, there are a number of our, our young people who grow up in really good, decent families. They have strong moral foundations. They never experience uh, unprovoked and unreasonable violence. And the day it does happen to them, they go into shock because they've never been prepared for it. And so they freeze or they run um, or they cry. And um, that's simply the, the process of development that they've gone through in their, in their life. Whereas if you come off the back streets of a, a major city um, where you've had to fight just to get down the road at night sometimes, or you've, you've had to stand up for yourself to exist in a, in a peer group, in a community, then the chances are you're going to have a, a far stronger 
a far better chance of um, of being capable as a soldier. I, I read in in your story that during your time in the military, you also had to deal with. You hinted to it earlier in our conversation. Leaders that didn't necessarily have the best interest of of the men, like. Can you walk us through that? Like, what kind of crazy people on, on your side have you had to deal with in terms of, um, you know, from a leadership perspective? Well, I'll give you I'll give you one example. We were during the Falklands War in 1982. My squadron was tasked to fly into Argentina to destroy the Super Etendard jets that were sinking our capital ships in the South Atlantic, and um, it was a one-way mission. We were going down there to destroy the jets on the runway, and there was no return journey. So we were either killed or captured. And uh, that was an acceptable mission, as far as we were concerned. It was what we were trained to do. However, as the, um, we, got, we got halfway there, and the mission was delayed, and there was, so we had more time to think about it, and we, we wanted a different route into the target. And so we tried to persuade the brigadier that had prepared and made this his plan to adjust it so that we had a better chance of survival, a better chance of getting to the target, and perhaps even a better chance of get, coming home afterwards. But he wouldn't have any of it. And as the war went on and was, he, we waited, it became apparent that there was only one air portable suit, uh, Exocet missile left on a jet in Argentina. But our brigadier still was determined to get us to go and do this mission. And to most of us, that seemed like ridiculous. It was ridiculous. It was going to be a waste of a squadron. There was one um, missile left that could possibly have sunk one of our aircraft carriers. The Paras, the Marines, the Guards, the Navy, the Air Force were winning the war on the mainland. But he still wanted the mission to go ahead. And um, so we, 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 we pretty much, we got pretty upset about that. From our point of view, he just wanted this mission for his own glory and the glory of the regiment, not for any strategic or, or tactical or operational reasons. And when we got back to the United Kingdom and we had a debrief on the mission, he tried to accuse us of being cowards because we didn't want to do it his way. And we started to laugh and we laughed and we laughed at him until he got off the stage. And that was our revenge on, um, on his particular desire to send us to our death. Yeah. So we were prepared to go, prepared to do the mission, but not, not for, not without a damn good reason. Excuse my ignorance on this, though, Robin. Like in terms of first world kind of democracies, let's say like Australia, the United States, or 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 Britain, unless there's an imminent threat, like is that convention that soldiers would get sent somewhere without a probability that they would come back? Like, is that an acceptable risk generally? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, it is, uh, especially the paratroopers and um, special forces. When you're at war, it's your job to die for your country. Um, if anybody thinks they're going to be a soldier just for the purpose of earning a trade, then they're wrong. The first job of a soldier is to fight. And if you won't fight, then you're wasting your time being. You should have the uniform on in the first place. And sometimes you're given jobs and missions and you, there's a, there's a very strong chance that you will die. And you have to tell yourself, as a result of that risk, as a result of your death, a larger number of people will actually survive and benefit by that. You will win your war. Your country will be safe. You will 
uh, you will send the Russians back uh, from Ukraine. You will keep the Nazis out of Europe. You will, you know, you will, you will, those are, those are acceptable risks. And I sometimes think that soldiers aren't taught that well enough. Many are recruited. It should be made clear to you, you know, you want to be a soldier. Can you fight? Will you fight? And um, you understand that there's a chance that you will die for your people. Really? I don't like the word nation. I like the word mm-hmm. You talked about having to fight against your own inner demons, Robin. And what, what were some of those inner demons? I think not understanding my stepfather and um, why he was the way he was. Uh, when he died, he I had his I had his body there. I'm just pointing to my wife at the moment. That potions come. Yeah, and he um, we we became friends since, uh, in his in later life, very much so. But I still I sat down next to his body after he died, and I said, "Why were you such a bastard to me when I was young?" Where really? And I swear a voice came into my head saying, "I was only doing the best I could, the only way I knew." And that was. Um, the first time I really understood him um, in many ways, and I think there's an awful lot of fathers and parents that do exactly the same. Their children might perceive them as being brutal, very too overstrict or overprotective, or sometimes they sometimes they are bad people, but most of the time they just they just don't know an alternative way of getting you to do. What they want you to do. Nobody teaches you to be mum and dad. Are you a father? Except your own parents. Are you a father, Robin? Are you a dad? Oh, my goodness. I'm a great-grandfather. Right. I've got um, five children, ten grandchildren, and uh, five great-grandchildren. So, um, and I'm the oldest in the family now, including my brothers or sisters. So, everyone expects me to have the um, the answers, people, the money. I <laughs> You're the patriarch, Robin. How have you found your history, trauma, the good, bad, and the ugly, like reflecting on how you parented and now as a grandparent, like how have you brought that all together? You know, has it been messy? Has, no, like what, what's that whole situation look like, man? Well, I think the, um, the first thing was that I met Heather when I was on SS selection, so I was 21, she was 20. And um, she, I was, I was, I was that nasty, aggressive, lone wolf um, who hated the world. Yeah. And she got into the cage and tickled my ears, you know, and she, she gave me a great deal of confidence, um, taught me how to love, taught me how to show my emotions, gave me back my humanity. And, and then later she gave me children. And she taught me how to uh, love those children. She taught me how to care for them. Over my um, my oldest son, Alex, was born four days after the surrender in the Falklands. And so he's 43 years old now. And when he was a boy, I smacked his ass twice. And um, I think one of those times was by accident. I saw him around. Um, with Oliver again twice and with my daughters never and I I learned to um, I learned to control people that I care deeply about with disappointment rather than with anger and um, that's a great value and there's a piece in in the Bible that says um, there's a, a phrase 
he turned his face from him. And that's very useful when it comes to dealing with people who disappoint you. Just simply turning your face from them and refusing to communicate and showing your disappointment and showing how unhappy you are um, without getting angry or aggressive or violent. Um, and um, so, yeah, they've, they've, they've all grown up to be pretty good kids and they're all doing pretty well. Um, I think as a result of our mine and Heather's unity and her input and guidance, more than anything else. It's, that's that's beautiful, man. That's amazing. And and I take on board what you just said about, you know, using expressions rather than anger. Uh, you know, I, I, I tend to do that with my son. And, you know, I, I when, when I have that moment of realization um, and don't just react in anger, I might look away where I might give him a look and it, it, I can see it impacts him much more than if I just start shouting at him Ooh. and he just starts shouting back and it just becomes lost. And then my wife starts yelling at me and yep. the whole situation ends up pear-shaped. So talk about your journey with karate, Robin. Like when did that journey start? Well, I was 23. I was, um, by then I was a, a fully qualified and integrated special forces soldier. But everything we were doing was with guns. Pistols, undercover, um, big guns, small guns, will guns, you know, you know, guns, guns, guns. And um, we weren't doing any other combat. So um, me and my best friend at the time, Bob Curry, we, we went and joined the local karate club downtown. And um, it immediately gave me something. Because although I could, I could fight and I could be violent and I could be vicious, I didn't have any real fighting skills apart from aggression. And um, as um, the studies uh, went on, and as I became more capable, I found that my peers started to treat me differently because I was actually becoming a more reasonable and calmer person as well as a result of my martial arts. If you train somebody to be disciplined and strong, that discipline spreads into other parts of their life. And also, a strong, disciplined, capable person will often be a kinder person because he doesn't have something to prove. Um, he's confident in himself. He's confident in his abilities. And it improved me in many, many ways. And I continued to do it for nearly 30 years until I broke my neck. It became my life, and I loved it. And it, it actually helped me out of an awful lot of situations that could have been uh, very, very damaging or violent, um, simply because I was capable of remaining calm and moving away from a situation or handling it or making the other person realize without violence that they'd made a mistake and they'd come up against the wrong person. So, yeah, there was um, an awful lot of benefits to it. And then I started to teach it to kids and um, try to impart that same thing to them, not about winning games or winning competitions or trophies or medals, but about good manners, self-discipline, respect for parents and teachers, and personal development. And I still believe that very, very strongly, which is the real core of martial arts. It's not about, it's not a sport, it's an art. It's about personal development. So all these things, Robin, soldiering, poetry, martial arts, like how have they come together in terms of what you see 
your mission, your personal mission or your purpose to be? Like what lights your fire? Like I, I know that you do lots of different things. You write, you teach. What is it that really gets you out of bed? Well, lights my fire is uh, bullies, people who bully, intimidate, isolate and humiliate other human beings. People who have evil core values, because you can have bad core values as well as good ones. Be specific. Uh, Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump get me out of bed in the morning because I hate both of them equally with a venom. And I watch the propaganda and the lies and the abuse of human beings and um, the misleading of ignorant human beings as well. Not stupid, but people who don't know any better and how that's dangerous. And I look back at history and see how people have done exactly the same thing. In history, Adolf Hitler being one example, surrounded by his group of Nazi sycophants as well. Uh, Joseph Stalin being another one. And um, the majority of us are moderate. The majority of people are moderate. We're not woke and we're not capitalism. We're the silent majority in the middle. But we're overwhelmed that our voices are taken from us by these extremists all the time. And so that gets me out of bed. That gets me upset. That gets me annoyed. That gets me wanted to speak out and bang the table and say, you will not silence me. You will not tell me to be quiet. You will not make me feel foolish. I will keep banging this drum. And um, regardless of what you do, you can attack my web pages. You can attack my social media outlets. And in, in cases, sometimes they've even attacked my personal family, close family. But I will not be quiet because the day the moderate moral majority start stop being tamed, stop having a voice, uh, that's the time that the crazies take over. And we've been get, getting pretty close in the last five or six years to the crazies taking over. And it's about time we all started standing up and, and speaking about it. Yeah, I'm with you, Rob. And I feel like it's almost, we're living in a world of polarities and no one knows how to be sensible anymore. No one knows how to have a conversation and debate. It's almost like we have to move to an extreme and the the middle ground is lost. And I don't know why that's happened or how that's happened, but it seems... To be happening <laughs> for whatever reason. Yeah. So, would you ever get into politics? Yeah, I was. Uh, I was on the fringe of politics when I was um, running the Northern Ireland Veterans Campaign, which was to stop the vexatious prosecution of soldiers who had been previously investigated fifty years ago. And I found that it, it wasn't the sabers of my enemies; it was the daggers of my friends that were the biggest problem. <laughs> politics is a nasty game of popularity and lies. Um, and it's very, very difficult to hold on to the truth. And uh, after six years, uh, my health was suffering as a result of it. And um, I had to step aside and let somebody else take on the burden. But I think we managed to get a, we've still, we've got a bill going through Parliament now called the Northern Ireland Legacy Bill, which will, which will achieve what we set out to achieve. But that was just one thing. We get politicians who begin with high uh, moral objectives and then they get into the system and they get brutalized by the system and they get brutalized by the people as well so as soon as you become a politician everybody thinks that you're fair game for them to cast their abuse at and so we end up with the toughest meanest sons of bitches in our leadership because of our own behavior because we're constantly attacking them and looking for faults in them and tearing them to pieces and um 
So I guess in some ways we get what we deserve. We're not prepared to put somebody who's decent and a moderate up there and support them when they make a mistake. And as soon as you get on that pedestal of politics, everybody thinks it's their job to kick you off it. Mm. And that's, um, that's, that's one of the great difficulties we have with democracy at the moment is that we're constantly attacking and abuse the people that we elect to do a good job for us. Even sad. I wanted to ask you a question, you know, particularly around your commentary with Russia and, and Putin. Like, what do you think is going to happen? Like, let's say in two to three years, do you think he's forgotten kind of his movement will subside and, you know, because he's a powerful man, he'll kind of slowly move into the shadows but get away with it like do you think there will be a day of reckoning for him he's already having his day of reckoning he's already made the biggest error of his entire life he thought he would march into ukraine the same way that um russia previously marched soviet union marched into hungary and czechoslovakia and he didn't anticipate the ukrainian people having the will and the strength and the courage to fight back they'd prepared for it to a degree as well. He didn't understand the power of democracy. He'd been allowed to walk into Crimea and get away with it, and he thought he was going to do the same thing again. A big mistake, really, in that particular, in Ukraine, was that the, the world allowed, allowed him to get away with walking into Crimea in the first place. But that's in hindsight. I'm not a prophet, so what's going to happen will probably surprise all of us. But... I can be sure that Ukraine, with continued Western support, will defeat Russia and will defeat Vladimir Putin. What the Russian people do with Vladimir Putin is up to them. Whether they destroy him, take him down, move him sideways or submit to him in some strange form again in the future, nobody knows. But Ukraine will win. Ukraine will push to a point where they take back their lands and then negotiate a settlement. But I also think that when they've done that, they must become part of NATO and become part become a fixed member of the European Union. Um, because with that unity and that cover and that protection and that deterrent factor, um, you will ensure that nobody like Putin, uh, nobody who follows Putin, will have the, the ability to try it again. And that's the thing, because most wars are present, pre prevent prevented by strength. They're not prevented by uh, diplomacy and deterrence. Uh, they are de de by diplomacy that they're deflected and prevented by strength. And we must remain strong. The biggest weakness we've made in Europe in the last uh, 30 years is reducing our level of strength and military defensive capabilities to the point where somebody believed that they could push and get away with it. And now we we, we are using our treasure and Ukraine are using their blood and courage to, as a result of that lack of foresight and lack of understanding of history. Brilliantly uh, put there, Robin. Before we land this plane, I always ask a personal question around habits. So, Robin, in your years of soldiering and karate and, and martial arts and everything that you've done in terms of your personal development, are there any one or two habits that you kind of embrace? on a daily basis that are really important to you? PBF, PFB, PFB, <laughs> force of breath, 
um, a lot of hot air blows cold. Uh, give you, uh, one of the things I love about writing as opposed to speaking is you can read what you've written and go over it and look for the errors and, and look for the mistakes. But once you open this in public, as I'm doing now, you've said it and somebody can take it and they can deliberately misinterpret it or use it against you. The other thing is when you screw up, when you make a mistake, uh, not to be frightened to say, yeah, I was wrong, but I've changed my mind. It's, I changed my mind about Brexit, believe it or not. I was persuaded that it was a good idea. Um, given the choice now, I would say, yeah, my God, I was wrong. Well, um, I, was, I didn't have enough information. I didn't understand the full picture. The politicians in charge were failing to give me an education about what the whole prospects, prospect of that change were. And so, pause for breath, take your time. Think about what you're going to say. And if you do get something wrong, turn around and say, yeah, I got it wrong. There's nothing wrong with getting something wrong. But never apologize when you're right. My wife does. She, she won't apologize if she's wrong. And she certainly won't apologize if, if she's right. So I'm, I'm used to that. So that that's all good. I've, I've learned to live with that one. So look, I really appreciate your, your time, Robin, on the show. Where can our audience learn more about you? The easy way is to go to robinhorsfull.com. There's no E in Horsfall, H-O-R-S-F-A-L-L. And there's an awful lot about me there. You can just put my name in Google. And uh, you can find my books on, um, on my webpage if you're interested in that. And I also put out signed, um, signed pictures from the Iranian embassy siege that I was part of in 1980 when we rescued 19 hostages um, from six terrorists. So it's all there uh, if you want more. And if you want um, a large part of my life story, you got to look up Fighting Scared. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Hey, folks, thanks for joining me on this episode. With all the options out there, I am super grateful that you spent time with me. I hope that you've received value from this conversation. And if you have... I've achieved my goal. Your support is really appreciated. If you really, really like the show or you want me to know how we can make it better, please do leave a review letting me know and the world know your thoughts, yeah? If you want to know more about Ultra Habits and what we're doing, go to www.ugventures.co. Sign up for the quiz. You'll get some really good insights into the archetype in terms of your habits and how you can improve your habits in your business and in your life. You'll also get a weekly newsletter with some blogs, episode updates. I promise you, we do not spam. I absolutely hate spam, and I think it's super unprofessional. It's all about value. So anyways, folks, until the next episode, have a great week. Take care.